Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. John Carter of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Episode 9. Book 1. A Princess of Mars. Chapter 24. The Looting of Zodanga. About noon, I passed low over a great dead city of ancient Mars, and as I skimmed out across the plain beyond, I came full upon several thousand green warriors engaged in a terrific battle. Scarcely had I seen them than a volley of shots was directed at me, and with the almost unfailing accuracy of their aim, my little craft was instantly a ruined wreck, sinking erratically to the ground. I fell almost directly in the center of the fierce combat, among warriors who had not seen my approach so busily were they engaged in life-and-death struggles. The men were fighting on foot with long swords, while an occasional shot from a sharpshooter on the outskirts of the conflict would bring down a warrior who might, for an instant, separate himself from the entangled mass. As my machine sank among them, I realized that it was fight or die with good chances of dying in any event, and so I struck the ground with drawn longsword, ready to defend myself as I could. I fell beside a huge monster who was engaged with three antagonists, and as I glanced at his fierce face, filled with the light of battle, I recognized Taurus Tarkas the Thoric. He did not see me, as I was a trifle behind him, and just then the three warriors opposing him, and whom I recognized as war hoons, charged simultaneously. The mighty fellow made quick work of one of them, but in stepping back for another thrust, he fell over a dead body behind him and was down, and at the mercy of his foes in an instant. Quick as lightning they were upon him, and Tars Tarkas would have been gathered to his father's in short order had I not sprung before his prostrate form and engaged his adversaries. I had accounted for one of them when the mighty Thark regained his feet and quickly settled the other. He gave me one look, and a slight smile touched his grim lip. As, touching my shoulder, he said, I would scarcely recognize you, John Carter, but there is no other mortal upon Barsoom who would have done what you have for me. I think I have learned that there is such a thing as friendship, my friend. He said no more, nor was there opportunity, for the war hoons were closing in about us, and together we fought, shoulder to shoulder, during all that long, hot afternoon. Until the tide of battle turned, and the remnant of the fierce war hoon horde fell back upon their thoats, and fled into the gathering darkness. Ten thousand men had been engaged in that titanic struggle, and upon the field of battle lay three thousand dead. Neither side asked or gave quarter, nor did they attempt to take prisoners. On our return to the city after the battle, we had gone directly to Tars Tarkas's quarters, where I was left alone while the chieftain attended the customary council, which immediately follows an engagement. As I sat awaiting the return of the green warrior, I heard something move in an adjoining apartment, and as I glanced up there rushed suddenly upon me a huge and hideous creature which bore me backward upon the pile of silks and furs upon which I had been reclining. It was Woola. Faithful, loving Woola, 
He had found his way back to Thark and, as Tars Tarkas later told me, had gone immediately to my former quarters where he had taken up his pathetic and seemingly hopeless watch for my return. Tal Hodges knows that you are here, John Carter, said Tars Tarkas on his return from the Jeddak's quarters. Sarkoja saw and recognized you as we were returning. Tal Hages has ordered me to bring you before him tonight. I have ten thoughts, John Carter. You may take your choice from among them, and I will accompany you to the nearest waterway that leads to Helium. Tars Tarkas may be a cruel green warrior, but he can be a friend as well. Come, we must start. And when you return, Tars Tarkas? I ask. The wild callots, possibly or worse, he replied. Unless I should chance to have the opportunity, I have so long waited of battling with Tal Hajus. We will stay, Tars Tarkas, and see Tal Hajus tonight. You shall not sacrifice yourself, and it may be that tonight you can have the chance you wait. He objected strenuously, saying that Tal Hajus often flew into wild fits of passion at the mere thought of the blow I had dealt him, and that if ever he laid his hands upon me, I would be subjected to the most horrible tortures. While we were eating, I repeated to Tars Tarkas the story which Sola had told me that night upon the sea bottom during the march to Thark. He said but little, but the great muscles of his face worked in passion and in agony at recollection of the horrors which had been heaped upon the only thing he had ever loved in all his cold, cruel, terrible existence. He no longer demurred when I suggested that we go before Tal Hajis, only saying that he would like to speak to Sarkoja first. At his request, I accompanied him to her quarters, and the look of venomous hatred she cast upon me was almost adequate recompense for any future misfortunes this accidental return to Thark might bring me. Sarkoja, said Tars Tarkas, forty years ago you were instrumental in bringing about the torture and death of a woman named Gozava. I have just discovered that the warrior who loved that woman has learned of your part in the transaction. He may not kill you, Sarkoja. It is not our custom, but there is nothing to prevent him tying one end of a strap about your neck and the other end to a wild thoat, merely to test your fitness to survive and help perpetuate our race. Having heard that he would do this on the morrow, I thought it only right to warn you, for I am a just man. The river is but a short pilgrimage, Sarkoja. Come, John Carter. The next morning... Sarkoja was gone, nor was she ever seen after. In silence, we hastened to the Jeddak's palace, where we were immediately admitted to his presence. In fact, he could scarcely wait to see me, and was standing erect upon his platform, glowering at the entrance as I came in. Strap him to that pillar, he shrieked. We shall see who it is dare strike the mighty tall Hodges. Heat the irons. With my own hands I shall burn the eyes from his head, that he may not pollute my person with his vile gaze. Chieftains of Thark, I cried, turning to the assembled council and ignoring tall Hodges. I have been a chief among you, and today I have fought for Thark shoulder to shoulder with her greatest warrior. You owe me at least a hearing. I have won that much today. You claim to be a just people. "'Silence!' roared Talhajus. "'Gag the creature and bind him as I command.' "'Justice, Talhajus!' exclaimed Lorcos Tummel. "'Who are you to set aside the customs of ages among the Tharks?' "'Yes, Justice,' 
echoed a dozen voices, and so, while Tal Hodges fumed and frothed, I continued. You are a brave people and you love bravery, but where was your mighty Jeddak during the fighting today? I did not see him in the thick of battle. He was not there. He runs defenseless women and little children in his lair, but how recently has one of you seen him fight with men? Why, even I, a midget beside him, felled him with a single blow of my fist. Is it of such that the Tharks fashion their jeddaks? There stands beside me now a great Thark, a mighty warrior and a noble man. Chieftains, how sounds, Tars Tarkas, Jeddak of Thark. A roar of deep-toned applause greeted this suggestion. It but remains for this council to command, and Tal Hajus must prove his fitness to rule. Were he a brave man, he would invite Tars Tarkas to combat, for he does not love him, but Tal Hajus is afraid. Tall Hodges, your Jeddak, is a coward. With my bare hands I could kill him, and he knows it. After I ceased, there was tense silence, as all eyes were riveted upon Tal Hodges. He did not speak or move, but the blotchy green of his countenance turned livid, and the froth froze upon his lips. Tall Hodges, said Lorquas Tommel in a cold, hard voice. Never in my long life have I seen a Jeddak of the Tharks so humiliated. There could be but one answer to this arraignment. We await it, and still tall Hajas stood as though petrified. Chieftains, continued Lorquas Tommel, shall the Jeddak Tal Hajas prove his fitness to rule over Tars Tarkas? There were twenty chieftains about the rostrum, and twenty swords flashed high in ascent. There was no alternative. That decree was final, and so Tal Hajus drew his longsword and advanced to meet Tars Tarkas. The combat was soon over, and, with his foot upon the neck of the dead monster, Tars Tarkas became Jeddak among the Tharks. His first act was to make me a full-fledged chieftain with a rank I had won by my combats the first few weeks of my captivity among them. Seeing the favorable disposition of the warriors toward Tars Tarkas, as well as toward me, I grasped the opportunity to enlist them in my cause against Zodanga. I told Tars Tarkas the story of my adventures and in a few words had explained to him the thought I had in mind. John Carter has made a proposal, he said, addressing the council which meets with my sanction. I shall put it to you briefly. Deja Thoris, the princess of Helium, who was our prisoner, is now held by the Jeddak of Zodanga, whose son she must wed to save her country from devastation at the hands of the Zodangan forces. John Carter suggests that we rescue her and return her to Helium. The loot of Zodanga would be magnificent. And I have often thought that had we an alliance with the people of Helium— we could obtain sufficient assurance of sustenance to permit us to increase the size and frequency of our hatchings, and thus become unquestionably supreme among the green men of all Barzoom. <clears throat> what say you? It was a chance to fight, an opportunity to loot, and they rose to the bait as a speckled trout to a fly. For Tharks, they were wildly enthusiastic— and before another half-hour had passed, twenty mounted messengers were speeding across Dead Sea Bottoms to call the hordes together for the expedition. In three days, we were on the march toward Zodanga, one hundred thousand strong, 
as Tars Parkas had been able to enlist the services of three smaller hordes on the promise of the great loot of Zodenga. At the head of the column I rode beside the great Thark while at the heel of my mount trotted my beloved Wula. We traveled entirely by night, timing our marches so that we camped during the day at deserted cities where, even to the beasts, we were all kept indoors during the daylight hours. On the march, Tars Tarkas, through his remarkable ability and statesmanship, enlisted 50,000 more warriors from various hordes, so that ten days after we set out, we halted at midnight outside the great walled city of Zodenga, 150,000 strong. The fighting strength and efficiency of this horde of ferocious green monsters was equivalent to ten times their number of red men. Never in the history of Barzoom, Tars Tarkas told me, had such a force of green warriors marched to battle together. It was a monstrous task to keep even a semblance of harmony among them, and it was a marvel to me that he got them to the city without a mighty battle among themselves. But as we neared Zodanga, their personal quarrels were submerged by their greater hatred for the Red Men, and especially for the Zodangans, who had for years waged a ruthless campaign of extermination against the Green Men, directing special attention toward despoiling their incubators. Now that we were before Zodanga, the task of obtaining entry to the city devolved upon me, and directing Tars Tarkas to hold his forces in two divisions out of earshot of the city, with each division opposite a large gateway, I took twenty dismounted warriors and approached one of the small gates that pierced the walls at short intervals. These gates have no regular guard, but are covered by sentries who patrol the avenue that encircles the city just within the walls as our metropolitan police patrol their beats. Now the walls of Zodanga are seventy-five feet in height and fifty feet thick. They are built of enormous blocks of carborundum, and the task of entering the city seemed to my escort of green warriors an impossibility. The fellows who had been detailed to accompany me were of one of the smaller hordes, and therefore did not know me. Placing three of them with their faces to the wall and arms locked, I commanded two more to mount to their shoulders, and a sixth I ordered to climb upon the shoulders of the upper two. The head of the topmost warrior towered over forty feet from the ground. In this way, with ten warriors, I built a series of three steps from the ground to the shoulders of the topmost man. Then, starting from a short distance behind them, I ran swiftly up from one tier to the next, and with a final bound from the broad shoulders of the highest, I clutched the top of the great wall and quietly drew myself to its broad expanse. After me, I dragged six lengths of leather from an equal number of my warriors. These lengths we had previously fastened together in passing one end to the topmost warrior, I lowered the other end cautiously over the opposite side of the wall toward the avenue below. No one was in sight, so lowering myself to the end of my leather strap, I dropped the remaining thirty feet to the pavement below. I had learned from Kantos Khan the secret of opening these gates, and in another moment my twenty great fighting men stood within the doomed city of Zodanga. I found to my delight that I had entered at the lower boundary of the enormous palace grounds. The building itself showed in the distance a blaze of glorious light, and on the instant I determined to lead a detachment of warriors directly within the palace itself, while the balance of the great horde was attacking the barracks of the soldiery. Dispatching one of my men to Taras Tarkas for a detail of fifty Tharks, 
With word of my intentions, I ordered ten warriors to capture and open one of the great gates, while with the nine remaining I took the other. We were to do our work quietly. No shots were to be fired, and no general advance made until I had reached the palace with my fifty tharks. Our plans worked to perfection. The two sentries we met were dispatched to their fathers upon the banks of the lost Sea of Chorus, and the guards at both gates followed them in silence. Chapter 25 Bucarnage to Joy Sometime later, Tars Tarkas and Kantos Khan returned to report that Zodanga had been completely reduced. Her forces were entirely destroyed or captured, and no further resistance was to be expected from within. Several battleships had escaped, but there were thousands of war and merchant vessels under guard of Thark warriors. The lesser hordes had commenced looting and quarreling among themselves. So it was decided that we collect what warriors we could, man as many vessels as possible with Zodangan prisoners, and make for helium without further loss of time. Five hours later, we sailed from the roofs of the dock buildings with a fleet of 250 battleships, carrying nearly 100,000 green warriors, followed by a fleet of transports with our thoats. Behind us, we left the stricken city in the fierce and brutal clutches of some 40,000 green warriors of the lesser hordes. They were looting, murdering, and fighting amongst themselves. In a hundred places, they had applied the torch, and columns of dense smoke were rising above the city, as though to blot out from the eye of heaven the horrid sights beneath. In the middle of the afternoon, we sighted the scarlet and yellow towers of Helium, and a short time later, a great fleet of Zodangan battleships rose from the camps of the besiegers without the city and advanced to meet us. The banners of Helium had been strung from stem to stern of each of our mighty craft, but the Zodangans did not need this sign to realize that we were enemies, for our green Martian warriors had opened fire upon them almost as they left the ground. With their uncanny marksmanship, they raked the oncoming fleet with volley after volley. The twin cities of Helium, perceiving that we were friends, sent out hundreds of vessels to aid us, and then began the first real air battle I had ever witnessed. The vessels carrying our green warriors were kept circling above the contending fleets of Helium and Zodanga, since their batteries were useless in the hands of the Tharks who, having no navy, have no skill in naval gunnery. Their small arm fire, however, was most effective, and the final outcome of the engagement was strongly influenced, if not wholly determined, by their presence. At first, the two forces circled at the same altitude, pouring broadside after broadside into each other. Presently, a great hole was torn in the hull of one of the immense battlecraft from the Zodangan camp. With a lurch, she turned completely over, the little figures of her crew plunging, turning, and twisting toward the ground a thousand feet below. Then, with sickening velocity, she tore after them, almost completely burying herself in the soft loam of the ancient sea bottom. A wild cry of exultation arose from the Heliumite squadron, and with redoubled ferocity, they fell upon the Zodangan fleet. By a pretty maneuver, two of the vessels of Helium gained a position above their adversaries from which they poured upon them from their keel-bomb batteries, a perfect torrent of exploding bombs. Then, one by one, the battleships of Helium succeeded in rising above the Zodangans, and in a short time a number of the beleaguering battleships were drifting hopeless wrecks toward the high scarlet tower of Greater Helium. 
Several others attempted to escape, but they were soon surrounded by thousands of tiny individual flyers, and above each hung a monster battleship of helium, ready to drop boarding parties upon their decks. Within but little more than an hour from the moment the victorious Zodangan squadron had risen to meet us from the camp of the besiegers, the battle was over, and the remaining vessels of the conquered Zodangans were headed toward the cities of Helium under prize crews. There was an extremely pathetic side to the surrender of these mighty flyers, the result of an age-old custom which demanded that surrender should be signalized by the voluntary plunging to earth of the commander of the vanquished vessel. One after another, the brave fellows, holding their colors high above their heads, leaped from the towering bows of their mighty craft to an awful death. Not until the commander of the entire fleet took the fearful plunge, thus indicating the surrender of the remaining vessels, did the fighting cease and the useless sacrifice of brave men come to an end. We now signaled the flagship of Helium's navy to approach, and when she was within hailing distance, I called out that we had the Princess Deja Thoris on board, and that we wished to transfer her to the flagship that she might be taken immediately to the city. As the full import of my announcement bore in upon them, a great cry arose from the decks of the flagship, and a moment later the colors of the Princess of Helium broke from a hundred points upon her upper works. When the other vessels of the squadron caught the meaning of the signals flashed them, they took up the wild acclaim and unfurled her colors in the gleaming sunlight. The flagship bore down upon us, and as she swung gracefully to and touched our side, a dozen officers sprang upon our decks. As their astonished gaze fell upon the hundreds of green warriors, who now came forth from the fighting shelters, they stopped aghast, but at sight of Kantos Khan, who advanced to meet them, they came forward, crowding about him. Deja Thoris and I then advanced, and they had no eyes for other than her. She received them gracefully, calling each by name, for they were men high in the esteem and service of her grandfather, and she knew them well. Lay your hands upon the shoulder of John Carter, she said to them, turning toward me, the man to whom Helium owes her princess as well as her victory today. They were very courteous to me and said many kind and complimentary things, but what seemed to impress them most was that I had won the aid of the fierce Tharks in my campaign for the liberation of Dejah Thoris and the relief of Helium. You owe your thanks more to another man than to me, I said, and here he is. Meet one of Barsoom's greatest soldiers and statesmen, Tars Tarkas, Jeddak of Thark. With the same polished courtesy that had marked their manner toward me, they extended their greetings to the great Thark, nor, to my surprise, was he much behind them in ease of bearing or in courtly speech. Though not a garrulous race, the Tharks are extremely formal, and their ways lend themselves amazingly to dignified and courtly manners. Deja Thoris went aboard the flagship and was much put out that I would not follow, but, as I explained to her, the battle was but partly won. We still had the land forces of the besieging Zodangans to account for, and I would not leave Tars Tarkas until that had been accomplished. The commander of the naval forces of Helium promised to arrange to have the armies of Helium attack from the city in conjunction with our land attack. And so the vessels separated and Deja Thoris was borne in triumph back to the court of her grandfather, Tardos Moors, Jeddak of Helium. In the distance lay our fleet of transports, 
with the thoats of the green warriors where they had remained during the battle. Without landing stages, it was to be a difficult matter to unload these beasts upon the open plain, but there was nothing else for it, and so we put out for a point about ten miles from the city and began the task. It was necessary to lower the animals to the ground in slings, and this work occupied the remainder of the day and half the night. Twice we were attacked by parties of Zodangan cavalry, but with little loss, however, and after darkness shut down, they withdrew. As soon as the last thoat was unloaded, Tars Tarkas gave the command to advance, and in three parties we crept upon the Zodangan camp from the north, the south, and the east. About a mile from the main camp we encountered their outposts, and, as had been prearranged, accepted this as the signal to charge. With wild, ferocious cries, and amidst the nasty squealing of battle, enraged thoats we bore down upon the Zodangans. We did not catch them napping, but found a well-entrenched battle line confronting us. Time after time we were repulsed until, toward noon, I began to fear for the result of the battle. The Zodangans numbered nearly a million fighting men, gathered from pole to pole, wherever stretched their ribbon-like waterways, while pitted against them were less than a hundred thousand green warriors. The forces from Helium had not arrived, nor could we receive any word from them. Just at noon, we heard heavy firing all along the line between the Zodangans and the cities, and we knew then that our much-needed reinforcements had come. Again, Tars Tarkas ordered the charge, and once more the mighty Thoats bore their terrible riders against the ramparts of the enemy. At the same moment, the battle line of Helium surged over the opposite breastworks of the Zodangans, and in another moment, they were being crushed as between two millstones. Nobly they fought, but in vain. The plain before the city became a veritable shambles at the last Zodangan surrendered, but finally the carnage ceased. The prisoners were marched back to Helium, and we entered the greater city's gates, a huge triumphal procession of conquering heroes. The broad avenues were lined with women and children, among which were the few men whose duties necessitated that they remain within the city during the battle. We were greeted with an endless round of applause and showered with ornaments of gold, platinum, silver, and precious jewels. The city had gone mad with joy. My fierce tharks caused the wildest excitement and enthusiasm. Never before had an armed body of green warriors entered the gates of Helium, and that they came now as friends and allies filled the red men with rejoicing. That my poor services to Deja Thoris had become known to the Heliumites was evidenced by the loud crying of my name and by the loads of ornaments that were fastened upon me and my huge thoat as we passed up the avenues to the palace. For even in the face of the ferocious appearance of Wula, the populace pressed close about me. As we approached this magnificent pile, we were met by a party of officers who greeted us warmly and requested that Tars Tarkas and his Jeds, with the Jeddaks and Jeds of his wild allies, together with myself, dismount and accompany them to receive from Tardo's moors an expression of his gratitude for our services. At the top of the great steps leading up to the main portals of the palace stood the royal party, and as we reached the lower steps, one of their number descended to meet us. He was an almost perfect specimen of manhood, tall, straight as an arrow, superbly muscled, and with the carriage and bearing of a ruler of men. I did not need to be told that he was Tardos Moors, Jeddak of Helium. 
The first member of our party he met was Tars Tarkas, and his first words sealed forever the new friendship between the races. That Tardos Moors, he said earnestly, may meet the greatest living warrior of Barsoom is a priceless honor, but that he may lay his hand on the shoulder of a friend and ally is a far greater boon. Jedek of Helium, returned Tars Tarkas. It has remained for a man of another world to teach the green warriors of Barsoom the meaning of friendship. To him, we owe the fact that the hordes of Thark can understand you, that they can appreciate and reciprocate the sentiments so graciously expressed. Tardos Morse then greeted each of the green Jeddaks and Jeds, and to each spoke words of friendship and appreciation. As he approached me, he laid both hands upon my shoulders. Welcome, my son, he said, that you are granted, gladly and without one word of opposition, the most precious jewel in all helium, yes, on all Barsoom, is sufficient earnest of my esteem. We were then presented to Morse Kajak, Jed of Lesser Helium, and father of Dejah Thoris. He had followed close behind Tardos Morse and seemed even more affected by the meeting than had his father. He tried a dozen times to express his gratitude to me, but his voice choked with emotion and he could not speak, and yet he had, as I was to later learn, a reputation for ferocity and fearlessness as a fighter that was remarkable, even upon warlike Barsoom. In common with all helium, he worshipped his daughter, nor could he think of what she had escaped without deep emotion. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 